What's the real meaning of the Ninth Amendment? We'll talk about it on episode 759 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. Find all those social media accounts again at brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. I'd love to get you there. Also, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you have the ability to do so. Typically, uh, Apple Podcasts lets you do that. But also at anchor.fm, you can leave a text review of the episodes. So a lot of great ways to let people know you like it. Also, share it around on social media and send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear and as always, get that McClanahan Academy free class when you enroll 10 Myths of American History. It's the best way to support the show financially because you get great content. And right now, I've got McClanahan Academy live, getting ready to open up, I think, in you know, just about a week or so. So go on and hop on and buy that class. You get me live four times. It's on American slavery. It's going to be a great class. So I hope that you sign up. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic at the, that I mentioned at the top of the show which is the four, I'm sorry, the Ninth Amendment. I'm sorry, the 14th Amendment. I almost always do the 14th. But the Ninth, the Ninth Amendment is one of these forgotten amendments. And yesterday, with uh, the piece by Judge Napolitano, I talked about the Ninth Amendment. And the title of this piece would lend you to believe that left libertarians are behind this view of the Ninth Amendment as being somehow uh, responsible for an expansion of quote-unquote rights in America. And I've talked a lot about rights and liberties in the last couple of weeks. And it's not just left libertarians, though. This is progressives do this. And I think there's a lot of confused conservatives out there that would say that, well, I mean, the Ninth Amendment has all these, uh, has the ability to expand rights. But is that the original intent of the Ninth Amendment? This is the real question. And if it wasn't the original intent, well, then what was it? What was the Ninth Amendment supposed to do uh, in the U.S. Constitution or, or with the United States government? What was it supposed to do with the Bill of Rights? What was the main purpose? What was the original intent of the Ninth Amendment? You might be surprised what the original intent was. And again, if we're going to do this, we're going to travel down this road and, and engage in this exercise, we need to go right back to the ratification debates. Typically, that's where you would find the answer. Or we need to look at uh, how the amendment was sold when it was going through the process of being agreed upon in Congress and then, of course, added to the U.S. Constitution, the ratification of the amendment uh, itself. So we could look at that. There's lots of different ways to understand what this amendment really meant. That would be original intent. I tell people all the time, and they ask me, well, what should I read? On the Constitution, what what document should I, what book should I go out and look at to understand the Constitution? Well, I mean, there's lots of good secondary sources, but I've always encouraged people to go out and get primary documents. It's why at McClanahan Academy, I spend a lot of time in my classes on primary documents. It is the real meat of being a historian. You go out and you read the primary documents, and if you want to understand what these people thought, go out and read what they said, read what they wrote. That's the best way to do it. Don't, don't get it filtered through the biases of some modern historian, even in yours truly. I mean, 
So I, when people have said in that at McLeanahan Academy, when I go and I do these reading classes and they come out of it and they say, well, you know, you, you were actually saying what the people said. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not telling you anything that wasn't said by these people. Right. So that's the whole point of being a historian. It's not your job is not to make up what they said or, uh, you know, kind of, well, I think they said this, but I think they really meant this. That's not my job. My job is to present what these people said, to give you their arguments and then say, well, obviously, this is what they thought was important. Right. So um, that's the main uh, objective when you're writing a history. But we don't do that as historians anymore. We we try to come up with a rationale or uh, in a, in a, a a some type of uh, excuse or some psychoanalysis of what's going on here, rather than just being objective. If we can, I, mean, I would suggest there's never really an objective history, but being somewhat objective and more importantly, seeking to understand these people. So. Let's talk about the Ninth Amendment from this originalist perspective, not one that's clouded by what we would like the Ninth Amendment to do, what we think the Ninth Amendment does, or if we just read the text of the amendment, what we think it does, but actually what it does according to the people who ratified it and wrote it. So there's a great piece, and I mentioned I was going to do this at the Abbeville Institute by Bill Watkins. This was published a couple of months back, November of 2022, I talked about it on that particular podcast. And again, if you're not getting the Abbeville Institute podcast uh, on Fridays, Fridays or Saturdays typically is when it comes out, that is the fifth podcast of the week by yours truly. If you want me five times a week, that's how you do it. It's why I don't do this show five times a week because I do that podcast. So I'm at my max doing that. So just head on over to uh, abbevilleinstitute.org and pick that up. Or, of course, you can look on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find that podcast as well. So that one's all things Southern, and I cover what what's, goes on at the Institute in the week. But this was a really interesting piece uh, because Bill Watkins, who is, by the way, a great attorney, great scholar, um, uh, an excellent uh, legal historian. You should really read Bill Watkins. William Watkins is his name, but you should really read, read uh, William Watkins. And uh, he had a, I, I talked about him, um, gosh, maybe a little over a year ago. Uh, he had a book come out and there was a, there was a book came out with an essay by Bill Watkins in it. Um, so I talked about that. It's a great, great legal scholar, but this is an interesting uh, article because of the Dobbs decision, which, of course, threw the issue of abortion back to the states where it really belonged. It was a, a defense of federalism. That's all the Dobbs decision did. <clears throat> it defended federalism in the original intent of the, of the Constitution. But I'm going to read this because even when I talked about it at the Abbeville Institute website, I didn't read through the document, um, but... Uh, I, I, I read through the uh, the article, but I think we need to because it really clearly understand. You have a clear understanding, I should say, of the Ninth Amendment. In fact, the title is "Left Libertarians, Dobbs, and the Ninth Amendment." And he said, "Interest in the Ninth Amendment has been renewed with the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, in which the court held that the Constitution contains no fundamental right to abortion." Many abo- abortion proponents have turned to the Ninth Amendment in criticizing the decision. For example, Damon Root at Reason described the decision as, quote, an insult to the Ninth Amendment, 
complained that Dobbs, quote, entirely fails to grapple with this necessary question of unenumerated rights retained by the people. Writing in the Hartford Current, Samuel uh, Teixeira suggested that Justice Samuel Alito, the author of the Dobbs decision, should be impeached for willingly and knowingly disregarding the Ninth Amendment. Now, notice what he did here. Um, First of all, he's talking about Reason Magazine, which would be left libertarians. And then, of course, the Hartford Current, which would be you know leftists. But he's talking about progressives, essentially. But I, I said this is not necessarily just confined to progressives. Judge Napolitano is not a left libertarian. He would be a Mises libertarian, someone who's more on the right. And he's not an abortion proponent. But he does talk about the Ninth Amendment as an expansion of unenumerated rights. And I think at times, and no, I love Judge Knapp, I think he tends to be too nationalist. Um, and that's, that's a real problem. We have to talk, and even though the piece I talked about this week was all about federalism, I do think he tends to be too nationalist at times. So Watkins says, Root Teixeira and others insist that the freedom to end a pregnancy is a right retained by the people under the Ninth Amendment which provides that, quote, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights should not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now again, that language itself, if you're a textualist, this is not, if you're a textualist, which is not an originalist, you're just a textualist, if you read that, you would say, okay, yeah, we've got all these unenumerated rights. This is an expansion. It's a right to privacy. It's a right to an abortion. It's a right to pick my nose in public. It's a right to do whatever I want. Right? This is an expansion of rights that um, we should have that the general government cannot abridge. Well, I mean, no matter where I'm standing, if I'm in the state of Virginia, if I'm in the state of California, if I'm in the state of North Dakota, it doesn't matter. That would be a real incorporationist perspective on this. And so, of course, you have to talk about the 14th Amendment, which Watkins has done quite a lot and knocked down that interpretation of it, which would be that it should be incorporated or at least applied, the Bill of Rights then applies to the states. That's what incorporation means. Uh, but regardless, this kind of expansive interpretation of the Ninth Amendment distorts what the Ninth Amendment really meant. In fact, the next statement says it all. He says, such arguments ignore the Ninth Amendment's role as a rule of construction and the fact that it has never been held to apply to the states. Even the modern Supreme Court has never incorporated the Ninth Amendment through the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. Now, that's an amazing statement. This is true. The Ninth Amendment has never been incorporated. Now, we've incorporated just about everything else, 1 through 8, essentially, but not 9 and 10. You can't incorporate 10, but not 9. Not 9. So even if you're an incorporationist, even if you look back to the court and start saying, well, we have these decisions, these opinions, and that would then apply, the, the Ninth Amendment applies to the states, it's never been done. It's never been done. So he says, consequently, there is simply no basis in history or modern constitutional law to use the Ninth Amendment to strike a state statute. This is the issue. You see, in Roe v. Wade, the original issue was could the states regulate it? And so the Supreme Court said no, because uh, it's uh, you have a right to this. Now, it, it they didn't actually, as, as he points out later on, it wasn't really a Ninth Amendment issue. 
So we're going to get into that. I mean, the Ninth Amendment, there's, there's this misconstruction about the Ninth Amendment, misinterpretation of what it is and what it means. And that's why I really love this piece, because he just hammers this. So he says, there are two primary competing interpretations of the Ninth Amendment. The first claims that it serves as a reservoir of fundamental or natural rights that are not specifically mentioned in the Constitution, yet nonetheless are entitled to judicial protection. Second claims that it is paired with the Tenth Amendment as a rule of construction to prevent, in the words of constitutional scholar Kurt T. Lash, quote, any interpretation of enumerated federal power that would allow federal authority to extend it to subjects left, as a matter of right, to the sovereign control of the people of the several states. The latter argument is supported by the history of the ratification debates and early interpretations by commentators and courts. So, you have two arguments. One, you have these unenumerated rights. It's an expansion of these rights. The other, so natural rights, this would be not even just the progressives, but people like the West Coast Straussians would get into this argument too. The other is that you have to pair it with the Tenth Amendment, and it's a rule of construction to prevent the federal government from doing these things. Not the states, but the federal government. This gets to be a very interesting argument in and of itself. If that's the case, uh, then can the federal government pass a law which would, say, codify Roe v. Wade? Could it do it under the Ninth Amendment? I mean, if you're arguing this, then you might open the door to that kind of interpretation. That it would be legal for the federal government to do it because it would be an unenumerated right. Something that the founding generation never really thought about. Of course, you did have, I think, a Washington Post article that brought up uh, that you, know, you had Jefferson and Monroe and others who were interested in an issue like this in the state of Virginia. But again, you're talking about the state of Virginia. It was outside the purview of the federal government. But Watkins says this argument where you would have the Ninth Amendment as uh, a companion to the Tenth Amendment is actually supported by the historical record. So he gets into it. He says, Throughout the ratification debates, friends of the Constitution insisted, and these would be the people who were for ratification, friends of the Constitution insisted, to quote James Madison in Federalist 45, that, quote, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. In the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Edmund Pendleton assured his colleagues that, quote, the two governments act in different manners and for different purposes. The new general government would operate in, a, in great national concerns and the states in mere local concerns. Because the governments existed for two different purposes and were both limited to the different objects, they can no more clash than two parallel lines can meet. That's Edmund Pendleton. Then George Nicholas, another proponent of the document, was more direct. In response to arguments that the federal government would possess a general power of legislation, he insisted that federal officials, quote, cannot legislate in any case but those particularly enumerated. No gentleman, Nicholas continued, who is a friend to the government, ought to withhold his assent from it for this reason. Governor Randolph echoed Nicholas's reasoning, quote, but in the general constitution, its powers are enumerated, Randolph averred, 
it is not then fairly deducible that it has no power but what is expressly given it, for if its powers would be general, an enumeration would be needless. End quote. Now, this is interesting. He gives you the Virginia argument. And Virginia's important. It was one of the great states that the entire process hinged, even though by the time Virginia debated, the question of ratification was already settled. But if Virginia, if, if Virginia had withheld its ratification, the Union would have looked dramatically different. In fact, the only reason Randolph was really in favor of the document was because he was afraid that Virginia would try to go its own way, and he didn't think Virginia could do it. He was afraid, essentially, of secession. He was afraid of disunion. He was afraid that the, that the real issue here was union. That's why he supported it. And he thought the Constitution still had problems. I mean, he refused to sign it in Philadelphia. But um, by, you get, by the time you get to the summer of 1788, he's in favor of it because he was afraid of disunion and what that would mean for the United States. But again, he's arguing here that we have a constitution with enumerated powers, and if we thought it was just going to be a general government to do anything it wanted with general powers, just like a state government, we wouldn't have enumerated the powers. So if it doesn't say you can do it, you can't do it. And what Watkins is arguing here is that the Ninth Amendment essentially reaffirms that. It reaffirms the fact that it's an enumeration of powers, and it doesn't mean you can go beyond that, just like the Tenth Amendment. So Watkins continues, These grand statements do not satisfy anti-federalists. They wanted specific guarantees that, one, the new government's powers were few and defined, and two, amendments would be obtained through Article 5 and not a constitutional interpretation that would extend the powers to far-flung far subjects. To address the first issue, the anti-federalist writing as the federal farmer suggested that the Constitution, quote, declare all powers, rights, and privileges are reserved, which are not explicitly and expressly given up. So again, this is the federal farmer. Quote, the Constitution should, quote, declare all powers, rights, and privileges are reserved, which are not explicitly and expressly given up. In other words, the reserved to who? Of course, to the people in the states. That's what they're reserved to. It means the general government has no authority over these things. It has no authority. So it's not a positive Enumeration of power is not a negative. It's just you have, you have no authority to do it. In other words, it goes back to the states. That's the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. A constitutional rule of construction was also needed for the second concern. The anti-federalist writer Brutus feared that the courts would interpret the Constitution, quote, not only according to its letter, but according to its spirit and intention. And having this power, they would strongly incline to give it such a construction as to extend the powers of the general government. They would, they would extend the powers of construction, meaning they would make it a national government. This is the argument. They say we need some way to protect against that. The Tenth Amendment. In addition to Brutus's worry about construction, friends of the Constitution in opposing a Bill of Rights suggested that by specifically stating, for example, that Congress has no power over free speech would imply that Congress, through principles of construction, does not have power over other rights and privileges not specifically listed. So again, this was 
something that, you know, well, the Bill of Rights is a problem. And actually, Hamilton and Roger Sherman and others made this argument, too, as friends of the Constitution. They would say that um, this is not an anti-federalist argument. This is a pro-Constitution argument. Well, if we, if we list these things in the Constitution, then what's going to happen is we have the powers that are not here. So we don't need to enumerate this. We need to have a limited Constitution. Alexander Hamilton made this argument. Roger Sherman made this argument. But we need to limit the Constitution, the powers to here. Because if we add a Bill of Rights, we're going to say, well, then we had all these powers to begin with. But of course, the argument was you didn't have them at all. Now you're saying you did. So this is, I think that's the most powerful argument for federalism you can have. The Bill of Rights was unnecessary. The states already had Bill of Rights. And that we should have, we should have stayed with that. But adding the Bill of Rights created a whole mess because now you at least open the door to the argument, well, we did have the, we, the Congress did have the power to regulate speech. The Congress did have the power to regulate the press. The Congress did have the power to, uh, to uh, you know, have cruel and unusual punishment. The Congress had those powers. But we know that they didn't because it's not enumerated in the document, for example. Based on these concerns, Virginia's ratifying convention proposed two amendments. The first said this. First, that each state in the Union shall respectively retain every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this Constitution delegated to the Congress of the United States or to the departments of the federal government. That was the first in the list of their proposed amendments. I've said this in the Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. If you want to know what was most important for these people, this was it. Maintaining federalism was the most important thing they could do. And 17th, down the list, that those clauses which declare that Congress shall not exercise certain powers be not interpreted in any manner whatsoever to extend the powers of Congress, but that they may be construed either as making exceptions to the specified powers where this shall be the case, or otherwise as inserted merely for greater caution. So again, what they're saying here is that because we've listed these things, it doesn't mean that Congress had them. It doesn't mean that Congress had these things. It just meant that we're making sure that you know, there are some things that were listed here. Congress did not have the power to do any of this stuff. But we're making sure that we're saying they still didn't have the power to do any of this stuff. In other words, it didn't apply to the states at all. That those clauses which declare that Congress shall not exercise certain powers be not interpreted in any manner whatsoever to extend the powers of Congress. Other states, including New York, Rhode Island, and North Carolina, expressed similar sentiments. These states sought to ensure a system of few and defined federal powers and to guard against the dangers of a constitutional construction that would augment federal power. So again, we have, we're saying, you have an enumeration of powers. We have, a, we have all powers reserved to the people in the states. In Virginia, it was each state in the union retained every power. Not just the people, but each state in the, the state retained the power. And therefore, by saying these things, it doesn't mean you can go run amok with the other stuff. It's a restriction on federal power. In his June 8, 1789 resolution suggesting amendments to the First Congress, James Madison recommended an amendment expressing that powers not delegated to the general government were reserved, our Tenth Amendment, and an amendment aimed at preventing expansive construction that was a forerunner of our Ninth Amendment. This is what it originally said, quote, 
The exceptions here or elsewhere in the Constitution made in favor of particular rights shall not be so construed as to diminish the just importance of other rights retained by the people or as to enlarge the powers delegated by the Constitution, but either as actual limitations of such power or inserted merely for greater caution. So what he's saying, again, to diminish the just importance of other rights retained by the people or as to enlarge the powers delegated by the Constitution. Now, this is an interesting question. He says something like a right to privacy. Is a right to privacy in the Constitution? Can the federal government infringe on a, quote, right to privacy? Well, if it doesn't say it can do it in the Constitution, it can't do it. doesn't mean the states can't do it. In fact, what's really interesting about this, let's talk about the issue of sedition. When the Alien and Sedition Acts were passed, of course, this was a big deal. And essentially, you know, Jefferson appealed to the Tenth Amendment, to the Ninth Amendment, but more to the Tenth Amendment. What Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina said was revealing. He said, look, a sedition law might be important. It might be something that we need. But the general government has no power to do it. The states can, though. The states can pass any sedition law they want, as long as it doesn't violate their constitution. So this was an issue. The general government had no power over sedition in that way, but the states did. So the general government has no power over, say, a right to privacy. They can't do anything that would infringe on that, but they can't do anything that would... uh, It's it's mute on this. It's, It's not even an issue for them. But the states can. This is the whole argument in the Dobbs decision. This is why I think some of it, you know, the left has figured this out in some ways. You know, well, I mean, in many states, it's it's okay. But when we nationalize everything, that creates massive conflict because you are destroying the very basis by which the Constitution was ratified. Madison's draft version of the Ninth Amendment underwent many changes. Virginia, led by Edmund Randolph, was so unhappy with the result that it contemplated rejecting both the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Madison assured his friends back home that the final version of the Ninth Amendment accomplished the same thing sought by Virginia's 17th proposed amendment. Randolph admitted that Madison's interpretation of the Ninth Amendment was plausible, but he still preferred the original Virginia proposal. Nonetheless, Virginia ultimately ratified both the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Madison's assurance to his friends on the meaning of the Ninth Amendment was genuine. Indeed, when arguing in the House against Hamilton's plan to create a Bank of the United States, Madison resorted to both the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. The Ninth, Madison contended, guarded against a latitude of interpretation, and the Tenth excluded every source of power not within the Constitution itself. End quote. Those are his words. So he's saying the Bank is unconstitutional because of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. So we have this Tenth Amendment push. Right? And that's important. But what Watkins is pointing out here is you could use both. They're both intended to be against misconstruction. And they're both intended to be against expansion of federal power. That's the whole point. They're to cut federal power. Justice Joseph Story, who was by no means a great justice, but regardless, interpreted the Ninth Amendment in a similar manner in his dissenting opinion in Houston v. Moore, 1820. An issue in Moore was when federal power was exclusive or shared concurrently with the states. Story indicated that unless the Constitution provides that a grant to the federal government is exclusive, then it should be understood that the states have concurrent authority. Story came to this conclusion not only upon the letter and spirit of the Ninth Amendment of the Constitution, but upon the soundest principles of general reasoning. 
Restory the Ninth Amendment was no repository of natural or fundamental rights, but provided a rule of constitutional interpretation. As Lash has observed, Justice Story interpreted and applied the Ninth Amendment precisely the way James Madison and the state ratifying conventions intended, as a rule of construction preserving the retained right of local self-government. Beautiful. The retained right of local self-government. The Ninth Amendment was no repository of natural or fundamental rights. This, again, flies in the face of the Straussians, the lefties, all these people, because they're all in the same boat. right? They're all, they all believe in positive federal power in many ways and in defense of, quote-unquote, natural rights. But what Watkins is doing is shredding all of that. They weren't concerned about that for the general government. Now, you could say that maybe at the state level we should have something like this or uh, I mean, this is something we can we can talk about, but not at the federal level. Early uh, commentator St. George Tucker, in his view of the Constitution of the United States, was in accord with Madison and Story. The Ninth Amendment, according to Tucker, was intended, quote, to guard the people against constructive usurpations and encroachments on their rights. The Ninth and Tenth together, Tucker thought, require, quote, that the powers delegated to the federal government are, in all cases, to receive the most strict construction that the instrument will bear, where the right of a state or of the people, either collectively or individually, may be drawn into question. End quote. In reviewing Tucker's words, it is helpful to remember, as pointed out by Raoul Berger, that rights and reserve powers were, quote, two sides of the same coin for the founders. We make a mistake if we try to segregate the Ninth Amendment to the realm of individual rights and the Tenth Amendment to the realm of state powers. The framers, with their emphasis on popular sovereignty and self-government, rejected such a dichotomy. So one was not for individual rights, one was not for state rights. They're both working together to prevent the general government from expanding and usurping its powers from something else, from the states and the people. It's to prevent the general government from doing anything that's not in the enumerated list of powers in Article 1, Section 8, essentially. That's the whole point. If it doesn't say it can do it, it can't do it. Whereas the opposite is true for the states. If it doesn't say they can't do it, they can do it. This is the entire argument for secession. It's why secession is completely constitutional. Because there's no prohibition on secession in the United States Constitution for the states. They can do whatever they want in that regard. The people of the states in particular. So, there you go. This is how the Constitution was understood. If it wasn't understood that way, you wouldn't have members of the founding generation, from the North, by the way, agitating for secession throughout almost all the early federal period. Because they would have said it was illegal. They didn't think it was, because it wasn't. In modern times, the Ninth Amendment is associated with Griswold v. Connecticut, in which the Supreme Court held that an ancient Connecticut statute banning contraceptives violated a federal constitutional right to privacy found in the penumbers and enumerations of the 1st, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and ninth Amendments. Justice Arthur Goldberg, joined by Chief Justice Earl Warren and Justice William Brennan, concurred in the opinion, but wrote separately to argue that the right to privacy was embodied in the language and history of the ninth Amendment. Justice Goldberg then set forth the familiar argument that the ninth Amendment was intended to be a repository of fundamental rights which, with which government may not infringe. In dissent, Justice Hugo Black challenged Justice Goldberg's account of the Ninth Amendment and observed, quote, 
that the amendment was passed not to broaden the powers of this court or any other department of the general government, but as every student of history knows, to assure the people that the Constitution and all its provisions was intended to limit the federal government to the powers granted expressly or by necessary implication. Hugo Black, again, who was awful, was actually right here. Again, it was a limitation on federal power, not state power. Federal power, but not state power. Now, you could say that Griswold v. Connecticut was kind of an uh, incorporation of the Ninth Amendment. I mean, this is what they're doing. Um, so, you know, it's it's there. It's there. Um, but not explicitly this is going to incorporate the Ninth Amendment. There's other things working here. First, third, fourth, fifth. These others, right? And Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court declined to resort to the Ninth Amendment when finding a constitutional right to abortion. Instead, the court held that the unenumerated right of privacy was based in the 14th Amendment's due process clause. This is the same vehicle the court had used to selectively apply to the state's various provisions of the Bill of Rights it deemed as fundamental. The Ninth Amendment has never been applied to the states via selective incorporation. Even jurists such as Hugo Black, who argued for total incorporation of the Bill of Rights rather than a picking-and-choosing approach, had in mind only the first eight amendments. Now, that's important. This Black was a disaster with incorporation, but he's saying here in the Griswold v. Connecticut case, no, no, the Ninth Amendment is not this. This doesn't apply to the states. Right? It doesn't apply to the states at all. Thus, no one can reasonably argue that the court insulated or violated the Ninth Amendment in Dobbs. Not even the Warren Court went so far as to hold that the Ninth Amendment applied to the states. Moreover, viewing the Ninth Amendment as a rule of construction meant to foil a, a, a interpretation of the Constitution shows that it is not a repository of rights simply awaiting court recognition. Left-leaning libertarians such as Root find the court's Dobbs decision dangerous because it flies against their pet theory of judicial engagement. And this is important, right? You have a certain part of left libertarian libertarians, other people who would think that we need the courts to act in a way that the left would actually, the progressives would actually want the court to do. It has to be an active federal judiciary to do things that they want. But as we've seen, I think as Watkins has clearly illustrated here, and I mean, this is why you should read the Institute website. We do stuff like this. We also have fun literature and other things. But there's great stuff on the website on a daily basis, Monday through Friday. Rather than the court sending policy issues such as abortion back to the states, the judicial engagers want a court that will use all tools available to reach desired outcomes. For example, the Institute for Justice in advocating for judicial engagement states that, quote, while the powers granted to the federal government by the Constitution are few and limited, the rights granted guaranteed to individuals are many and broad. The powers of state governments are likewise limited in scope and further constrained by the rights of individuals, end quote. So this is, I mean... That's a massive shift, right? So the states are also hidebound by the Ninth Amendment. They also can't do anything because of the Ninth Amendment. But as Watkins has pointed out, that's not the whole point. The states could do whatever they wanted, as long as it didn't violate the state constitutions. In contending for a national judiciary zealously striking down state laws, the judicial engagers ignore representations discussed above by the friends of the Constitution that state powers were numerous and indefinite. Judges who allow the people of the several states to decide abortion matters through the political process, according to the disciples of judicial engagement, are guilty of judicial abdication. Well, but this is how the Constitution was argued. 
Traditional engagers long for a world in which the court will appeal to natural rights to constitutionalize certain pet causes such as abortion on demand. And this is, again, where the Straussians are going down a, a path that they can't control. That, well, natural rights should stop here. But wait a second. It doesn't ever do that because people will take it in other directions. This is why we should talk about liberties and we should understand what the Magna Carta was talking about and what these ancient constitutions meant and what the Anglo-American political tradition meant and not just some enlightenment view of natural right and natural law. It was a distortion of what those things actually meant and their interpretation. The Dobbs majority rejected an invitation to expand court power. Therefore, we have seen renewed claims about the Ninth Amendment and the dynamism it promises. It is the same power coveted by Justices Goldberg, Warren, and Brennan in their Griswold concurrence. We can also rest assured that judicial engagement will be used in a manner consistent with the jurisprudence of Justices Goldberg, Warren, and Brennan. Right. So if you want a progressive court to do all kinds of things, to give the federal government power over everything in your life, well, keep pushing the Ninth Amendment is a way to have these rights protected, these unenumerated rights protected. It's not what it was intended to do. It was it ensured that the general government could not do these things, but not the states. All right. Great piece by Bill Watkins. And this, I hope, hammers home that the Ninth and Tenth Amendment work in conjunction to restrict federal power, not state power, but federal power. That was the whole point. I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.